Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. It must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to register for NDC London, January 28th to February 1st. Back in the QE2 Conference Center in Westminster. Yep. And there's a great lineup of speakers. And of course, Scott Hanselman is coming back. And our friend Tess Ferrandez. So go to ndc-london.com to register. And if that isn't awesome enough, NDC is coming to Portugal. The new show is coming to Porto February 26th to March 1st. Two days of workshops and two days of conference. So go to ndcporto.com to register before December 31st and get early bird pricing. And get this, NDC is also coming to Copenhagen March 27th through 29th at DGIBN. It's two days of workshops and a one-day conference. Go to ndcmini.com to learn more. The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop voting for Carl's band, The Defraggers, at BeTheWonder.com and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 510, with guest Scott Stanfield, recorded live Tuesday, December 1st, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Mali on DVD, PNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web Applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who just traded a cup of suck for a pinch of awesome, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. That's D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S for those of you who've never typed the URL before. What's up, Richard? I am here. I am happy. Let's do it. I'm okay. You're a PC. You like that, dude. That was funny. <laughs> As the book that uh, – who was it that you were that – that was a run-as-radio branded 64-bit question at Dev Connections. And the question was – what was it? It was – yeah, Mark it was it was a question for uh, one of the guests at the at the conference. Yeah, Mark Manassi's first book was entitled, and it was multiple choice, and the first one was called "I'm Okay, You're a PC." <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it was an, he his first book was an OS two book, which yeah. just goes to date Mark Manassi. That was so much fun. Hey, man, let's jump into Better Know a Framework. Da, 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 da. 
Awesome. Get this over with. It's all 4.0, right? Yeah, we're four point. We're sailing on 4.0 now. And uh, so there's a lot of great features in the .NET Framework 4.0, and a lot of them, I think, are getting overshadowed because of all the hype around Silverlight, which is awesome, and that's what we're talking about here today with Scott. But, you know, there are a lot of little things, a lot of cool things in there, such as tuples. Tuples? Yep. .NET 4 introduces a new type called System Tuple. System.tuple is a fixed-size collection of heterogeneously typed data, and I'm quoting from an article by Matt Ellis, which you can read at shrinkster.com slash 1BUU. One Bravo Umbrella Umbrella. It is Umbrella, right? It's actually Uniform, but I uniform. was Uniform. Is it Unicorn or Uniform? Uniform. All right. Like an array, a tuple has a fixed size that can't be changed once it has created. Okay, so the English is solid. Unlike an array... Each element in a tuple may be a different type, ah. and a tuple is able to guarantee strong typing for each element. So, cool. Yep. Uh, dynamic languages and functional languages uh, have enjoyed tuples, and now you can too. In C-sharp, even, or VBNet. Tuples everywhere. Tuples. System.tuple. Know it, love it, learn it. And read that article, by the way. It's from, um, it's from July of 2009, but it's still still relevant. Awesome. Good. Check it out. Who's yakking at us now, Richard? The email's and subject title is Newbie versus Guru. Hello, Carl and Richard. My first .NET Rocks experience was episode 300, Richard Campbell Tells All. That was a great show. That show was absolutely brilliant. Apparently <laughs> agrees with you. Epic. <laughs> I've been catching up with the podcast and just listened to episode 476, the panel discussion on the complexity of software. Good one. And this pushed me to realize an interesting observation. I've noticed that developers and all other software slash hardware people tend to fall into two categories, the newbie and the guru. That's it? There's no there's no intermediary? There's no intermediates. No intermediates. Okay. What I find really interesting is that I can't find someone in between those two roles. Ah, as a matter of fact, you read my mind. There you go. Have you two observed this behavior as well, or have I just not been looking close enough, and this is a perception issue? Yeah. And if this is categorization is common, do you two have any tips for going from newbie to guru? I think the reason you don't hear from the from the intermediates is because they're head down in the book trying to figure this stuff out, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, my, my thought when reading this email was... A newbie is everybody who knows less than you, and a guru is everyone who knows no more than you, <laughs> and nobody like, knows exactly what you know, so there is no intermediate. You ever notice how people that drive faster than you are maniacs, and people that drive slower than you are idiots? <laughs> exactly. Hey, come on, idiot! Whoa, look at that maniac. George Carlin. That's George Carlin. Yeah, yeah I can't Oh, and Monday's Rocks as well as .NET. Keep up the awesome podcasts. We should be doing one of those soon, I think. Chris Smith from Corpus Christi. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. And uh, yeah, I think you need to be looking harder. There's lots of intermediate folks out there. I, you know. I agree. Well, I, I think computer people in general have this terrible disease where the moment I understand something, it's easy. Right. And so, you know, you get this guru perception because everything is easy that you know how to do. Yeah, everything's and easy when you have all the answers. When you already know how to do it. Exactly. Yeah. But regardless, Chris, a mug is on its way to you. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas, suggestions for shows, criticism, anything, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. 
And we are down to the last days that you can enter my.netstory.com. Just two more days, right? That's it. Yeah. If you're listening to this show the day it came out, you know there's only two days to go before you the, the deadline hits for submitting projects to my.netstory.com. That's right. So the idea is that you got a .NET project that was particularly cool or awesome or wonderful or insightful. I don't know what it was. But if you think people would be interested in it, you submit it. You go to my.netstory.com, submit it there. And uh, some people that you know will be judging those. And uh, the winner, there's three uh, prizes. The first prize is a trip to the Galapagos Islands or a smart car, whichever right. you like. Just whichever take your you pick. Want. I'm just saying I'd go to the Galapagos personally, but that's just me. So uh, get in, get that in there. You can just get something together and submit it up there, my.netstory.com, and good luck. That brings us to our guest who has been a, uh, um, I don't say a frequent guest, but uh, a beloved guest of .NET Rocks. He always has good stuff to say. Scott Stanfield is CEO of Vertigo, a San Francisco area-based design and application development firm focused on internet and media experiences in Silverlight. The Vertigo portfolio includes the HD video experience for NBC Universal's coverage of the 2010 Olympic Winter Games, the launch of NBC Sports Sunday Night Football Extra and live streaming coverage of the 2008 Democratic National Convention and 2009 Presidential Inauguration. In 2008, Vertigo received the Microsoft Partner of the Year Award for its groundbreaking hard rock memorabilia experience, as well as two Webby nominations. Scott Stanfield is a recognized digital media evangelist and speaker. He's an active member of the Microsoft Regional Director Community covering Silicon Valley and participates in the Microsoft.net Partner Architect Council. Scott holds a BS in computer science from Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Prior to Vertigo, Scott worked as a member of the technical staff at Pixar. Welcome back, Scott. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Richard, glad to be back. I have to send a shout-out to the Central Coast folks because it is pronounced San Luis Obispo. San Luis. Despite your, uh, your, your Spanish acumen, it is not pronounced like one might think. It's not Luis? No, it's just Luis. San Luis Obispo. Yeah, Sorry but St. Louis. You know, it's San, St. Louis. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I am an American. Maybe there's a connection there. I am an, I'm a Yankee American. I know, but it really is San Luis. Uh, at least that's what we call it. And thanks for having me back. I, um, yeah. I'm proud to be kicking off a show that started off by... Uh, a plug for tuples. Isn't that awesome? That's a great way. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And, and you're serious about this Galapagos Island thing. Absolutely. I'm looking, I, I am really impressed. A smart car or Galapagos, I, that is a great first prize because it forces you to choose between being <laughs> theoretically an environmentally conscious driver right. or seeing one of the last environmentally conscious places on earth before it's gone. Yeah. Right. So it's a, uh, so you, so you either conserve energy and gasoline, or you get in a jet and blow your your uh, carbon credits for the year <laughs> or for the decade to go trample all over, uh, you know, extinct nests of dodo birds. Yeah, yeah, that'd be like I said, it'd be a tough choice. No, it's yeah. great. It's uh, well, hey guys, it's great to to be on at the the end of this year because boy, what a fabulous year the Amazing. world has enjoyed in two thousand nine. Amazing year. I, mean, I am so glad to be closing this puppy out. <laughs> I never... Actually, this decade's kind of sucked. <laughs> so, yeah. But t- 2009 in particular, it's uh, it's still an interesting time. 
But it, I can tell you it is a very interesting time in all series to be a Silverlight developer and designer. Silverlight is the ticket to the next 10 years of prosperous development, I think. It really was. Yeah. Was? Is? That was a Freudian slip. It's a... Uh, you know, there, when Silverlight 4 was shown at PDC 09, um, what was that, September, October? That was in... Uh, November? November. November. Jeez. Boy, the time just, just A couple of weeks by. ago? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there was a lot of... Uh, what was interesting was seeing the features in Silverlight 4 that bring it closer to parity to WPF. Yeah. And when Silverlight came out, remember, Silverlight 1 was JavaScript. Mm. Right. Which, so everybody's like, oh, it's never going to take off. It's too crazy. And Silverlight 2, we finally get to use C Sharp. Silverlight 1 did have the high-def video, which was very, which was really its foot in the door, I think. And that was, I think so, too. And it was smart because it's a great way to get early, early adoption of Silverlight. Yeah. Um, but now that we've got these you know, line of business style or, or client experience features. I think it's not only will it continue to cement the case for using Silverlight for a web experience, but it really gives us another choice for kind of traditional, what we might call traditional Windows yeah. uh, applications. Yeah, traditional Windows apps. So the, the line of business enterprise world is, you know, has had time to kind of contemplate Silverlight, but with Silverlight 4 coming, forget about it. It's over. I think this is the best release ever. Now, the out-of-browser experience isn't going to, is or isn't going to happen on multiple platforms. What's the story Oh, it, it works now. It actually works now. So you can do Silverlight 3 out-of-browser. We showed that at... Um, but with full trust, I mean. Mix. Yeah. Well, at Mix, what, Mix 09, we showed KEXP out-of-browser. And it gets better with Silverlight 4. You can do client elevation and comm automation, which that, that's the one piece that's not going to work on the Mac. Who cares? Okay. Now it's... Yeah, who cares yeah, about com on the Mac? There is no com. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, but if you have to write an application that depends on it, you got to know that it's you're limiting yourself to Windows. And there are also which is not a bad thing. Yeah, you know, it's Windows not a is still kind of popular. Yeah, it is. I've heard that. So um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but there are a few things in .NET four and in the Silverlight story now that are Windows only technologies that you really should be aware of. I, is it is it simply just a com piece? Yeah, I think. Now I thought the bigger one was the uh, device interaction stuff that interfacing with a with a webcam or things like that is I don't know that that's actually possible in a Mac. And I thought the trust issue, the full trust issue was also a Windows only thing. Mm. Is it? I must investigate. Um, <laughs> you know, nevertheless, this is the way I, I look at what Silverlight does. Is the people listening to this broadcast I imagine are, are and have been Microsoft platform loyalists, or or they're new to the platform and they're learning more about what you can do with the Microsoft world. And Silverlight allows us to do things that we could not do a few years back, especially because the only alternative was Flash and Air. And right. unless, you know, I don't know about you guys, but we're, we're not ActionScript guys. We, we couldn't do this stuff. So I feel like with Silverlight 4, it kind of led us into the party. Now, granted, a lot of us in the .NET world are coming into Silverlight, and we're going to create some pretty crappy-looking applications. You know, it's not all about the user experience right now. We're just trying to learn all this stuff. It's going to be like VB1 all over again. Well, it was like, do you guys remember when AOL was let on to the Internet? Yeah. Do you remember that? There yeah. literally was a day or a week when the Internet was made accessible by AOL. And, and the Usenet groups at the time were just littered with noobs. And I kind of feel like, in a way... 
what we collectively in the Microsoft world are able to do with Silverlight coming to the web. You know, we've got our feet wet in version 2 and 3. We're really able to do some amazing things now. And there's, there's different spaces. There's video, right? You know, Vertigo's been doing a lot with video. And then there's uh, photography and photos and imagery around Deep Zoom. And then there's now this whole potential for rich line of business apps that kind of, oh, I said rich. Oh, I, my New Year's yeah. resolution for next year is to not say rich, like rich experience. <laughs> when, when would you ever want a poor experience? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I, and the thing is, too, like a console application is not a poor experience. No. It might not be a high UI fidelity, but it might allow you to get a job done more quickly than if you had a graphical interface. So, I, I mean, believe it or not, last week, I have to tell you guys, I was um, writing awk scripts on OS X, the mock, you know, uh, Unix, uh, is either uh, Bash or Seashell, um, to restore or recover some files um, that I had lost in a corrupted um, hard drive. So stuff that I learned back in college in the, in the late 80s, I was still doing literally, you know, at the end of 2009 in a terminal window, and it was fantastic. I'm, I'm piping, I'm redirecting standard error and standard out to a pipe and redirect, uh, capture it in a file, and then I'm grepping through it to find the errors, and I'm writing a script. It was, it was actually, I've never had more fun losing data. <laughs> <laughs> literally had a corrupt hard drive and had 20,000 photos on that hard drive, and my backup was a few months out of sync, so I wrote a program. I use this great Unix program called Ditto to copy files. If it fails, it keeps going, capture all the output, grep through it, and then did all kinds of sed and stuff to kind of make a list of files I needed to go locate on my backups. It was crazy. But literally, it was fun. It was weird. I, I kind of missed the days of the, the, uh, the, the old Unix and terminal and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, any app that needs full trust is, uh, is not cross-platform. Okay. That makes sense. That's fine. That's good enough. Hey, with with so many services that are going to be in the cloud, um, or on the or on the web anyway, data sources on the on yeah. the web. Yeah. I wonder how much is going to need full trust. And if you need full trust, you probably need some distinguishing benefits that you're only going to get from, say, a Windows platform anyway. Yeah. So there. Well, and the only thing I can think of, really, now that you have this one common programming environment, is you want to interface with peripherals. You've got a barcode scanner or a camera or something that you yeah. want to communicate with as part of your application. Oh, yeah, that's right. Printing, I don't think, is cross-platform, is it? See, we really ought to be know. more prepared when we come to this show, man. I'm <laughs> sorry. Well, I, there's so many things. There's, there, there's printing, right-click, microphone, mouse wheel, uh, clipboard, API, post, you know, there's what's so many toast? new things. I don't think we've been able to step back and what's, what, rock what, what, it all wait, by wait, now. Wait, wait, what's toast? You know, the little pop-up notifications that everybody hates. Ah, okay. Toast. We call them toast because, you know, they pop up like a toaster. <laughs> Never heard that. No. Nope. Yeah, it's called toast. Toast. Because <laughs> calling them a pop-ups would be bad. Yeah, I know. We've got to create a new word for it, just like right. we create a word for everything. All right. According, here we here we got the story here. According to the Register, which is, you know, a bastion of, uh, of accurate information, uh, the, uh, the HTML control in Silverlight 4 isn't a new embedded browser from Microsoft, but uses components from IE on Windows or Safari on the Mac, which means that the same content might render differently. The HTML control only works out of browser and simply displays a blank space if browser hosted. Clipboard support is text only in the Silverlight 4 beta, although this could change for 
future release. We know about the comm story. It's a Windows-only feature because there is no comm on anything else. Uh, let's see. Platform mobile fragmentation. Mobile implementations of Silverlight may have features such as access to the phone dialer that might not work on the desktop. Well, you know, we have that anyway. It's called the Compact Framework. So, yeah, you know, there, there's going to as we get as we get closer to uh, feature parity, there are going to be some things that are only going to work on Windows, and maybe eventually some things that only work on a Mac. Yeah, and that's okay. And I don't I don't need I don't need QT. You know, I don't, I don't need a platform that's so generic works across everything that you end up with something that's non-distinctive and not interesting. I don't yeah. care that there's some areas that allow you to go deep because at the end of the day, Silverlight can't solve every problem anyway. Hey, guess what? Foxwoods Casino needs a new theme song, and they got a contest online where musicians and bands can upload MP3s and enter to win twenty-five grand. So, of course, my band, the Defraggers, came up with something funky. Check out just a little bit of this. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, if you like that and you want to help out your old friend Carl... Go to shrinkster.com slash 1C7D and vote for me. The name of the band is The Defraggers. And again, that's shrinkster.com slash 1C7D. I'm counting on you. So here's the interesting thing. Let's put our hats on back in the day of Java versus .NET. Let's go back and listen to Scott uh, Stanfield's yeah. first .NET Rocks show. Yeah, that where we were talking, it was all about, you know, Java. And .NET, mm-hmm. of course, you know, Microsoft did a lot of research around Java, and they like to, you know, pick the best pieces of Java and what Java does. And then improve on it. And essentially, you know, .NET was seen as a sort of a next generation Java, right, for, for Windows. Mm-hmm. And the whole, one of the whole wonderful things about Java was that it could, it had this plat, cross-platform support for, you know, trusted applications that mm-hmm. ran out of the browser. And, uh, of course, the, we all know what happened to that. Oh, yeah, it was a red herring. You really got locked into either an IBM stack or a WebSphere stack. Right. And then at the end of the day, you're either on Oracle, you're IBM, or Sun's gone. I mean, think about it. This show that you're referring to is number 11. Brought yeah. it up. It was back yeah. in 2002. Yeah. So in six short years, um, in my opinion, uh, Java has bifurcated and fractalized itself into arguments about further uh, complexity around architectural choices. Yeah. We, we have that as well with MVM, Prism, MVVM, and all that, whereas the rest of the world has moved on to the social web, yeah. Web 2, and maybe we're looking at Web 3.0, which to me, Web 3.0 is mobile. Hmm. I mean, it's, that's the thing that keeps me up at night, is that people are trading on their laptops for smartphones. It yeah. hasn't happened yet, but those things are getting pretty good. So it just goes to show you that things move very quickly. I think, however... Well, I know, I know companies like Vertigo and you guys and the people listening to this show that have been on the platform for a while, they, we've never had to leave. 
it's not like we got right. on WebLogic or WebSphere and, and, and had to add on 10 different third-party libraries like Swing and, mm-hmm. you know, some Oracle database driver that got obsolete. Microsoft has its warts as well, but at least it's one platform, and it tends to get us everywhere we want to go with the same tools, the same language, and the same platform. Right. And it's the, simply the reason why we can do Silverlight today. Our first Silverlight app, public on, on Silverlight 2, was the Hard Rock memorabilia site. It's still up today. It's still a highly referenced and trafficked site. turns out it's a pretty good place to go to to see if Silverlight works because we have early access to Silverlight bits. We tend to make sure that thing works. Oh, and by the way, can I say... The Easter egg for that site, you have to search for the letter V. Oh, really? I, I, we changed it at one point, and I saw people trying to demo it, and it wasn't doing the Easter egg. You search for the letter V, and it goes to the Beatles bobblehead, and then you use the mouse wheel to zoom back. Now, wait a so minute. Where is this? Silverlight? Where is this? What's that? What's the, web, what's the URL you're talking about? Uh, it's the Hard Rock Memorabilia. It's Memo, oh, I, because I can't spell memorabilia. Memo.hardrock.com. Yeah. Oh, Memo.hardrock.com. So, okay. so anyway, so that was our first one, and, and from there, we've been able to, to go off, you know, we did Playboy, Rolling Stone. Um, we took some of the same technology, did a Windows 7 touch system for Hard Rock in the Las Vegas casino. We did Surface from it. We did Sunday Night Football. We did the PDC website. We did Olympics. All that Silverlight with the exception of the, um, the, the, the Surface touch, Surface system. And, but it's not like, yeah, our, our folks here are really good, but it's not like everybody can't do that. It's not like you have to go off and learn something completely new. It's being on those, you know, it's still Visual Studio, it's still C-sharp for us, and it's still .NET at the end of the day. We just keep, we're hoping Microsoft drags us into these new experiences. Mobile's yet to be seen. That's going to be the big story. You know, what can we do with this knowledge that we have and do something impressive in the mobile space? Well, doesn't that basically imply that Microsoft has to make a mobile version of Silverlight? Yeah, it might be the worst kept secret, but yes, that's what I'm implying. Um, <laughs> but simply having the platform, I mean, there's so the, uh, the mobile space, there, there are several areas I would never, ever like to be involved in. I never want to own yeah, an airline. Funny. I never want to own or run an insurance company. And I would never want to run or own a mobile company, a mobile phone company. It just seems it's so difficult. Everybody hates you. Dangerous. We can probably throw Comcast in there as well. Um, <laughs> and I'd never want to be Comcast. Yeah. Oh. Actually, it should, should be nice because maybe by this time the show airs, Comcast might own NBC, which is our valued oh. customer. Yes. No, I like Comcast. I actually had a very good ex- – well, the weird – boy, we were really on tangents. We in the U.S. Uh, – Richard, I don't know if you guys did this, but we switched over to a digital broadcast system. We got rid of uh, analog signals, yep, which is we a good right thing. Along freed up you. that space, which I think – I don't know where it went, but um, probably to a, a mobile carrier – and I've got cable at home, and I was thinking that junk has been abstracted back at the cable company, and I still get whatever signal I want. No, I don't. I still have to get a stupid cable box. And it's like yeah. they use that as an excuse to get me their operating system on my TV front end, and I'm not very happy about that. It's driving a lot of people to get sort of uh, internet-based TV stations, you know, using even using the Xbox to stream Netflix mm-hmm. and things like that. A lot of people are simply turning off cable TV. Yeah, there is um, what the internet, what well, what Napster and what the internet did to the music business. The broadcasters and the content providers um, are in danger. In movies, for example, uh, they're a little worried. Yeah, they you know, should this, be worried. This could happen right? to them. So. 
Um, the, the models are being turned upside down. And what we see in doing projects like Sunday Night Football, March Madness, and the Olympics is our, our broadcast people, people from very successful business making you know, very good revenue on the advertising space, even though it's probably been soft for, for this year, applying some of the same principles for broadcast and advertising to a nonlinear, highly distracted Internet audience. And yeah. it doesn't always work. Here's a simple example. When you go to a site and you get a pre-roll for a video, that's the thing that you have to watch right. before you get to actually see your content. Right. What do you think the drop-off rate is between a 30-second ad that's been, you know, that's been uh, edited for television broadcast versus a 10-second ad? I'd probably you, you'll huge. probably watch a 10-second ad, right? Huge. I think it's 10 yeah, times. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. Well, because 30 seconds in internet is a long time. It is. And I think that there is a great, there is a, some kind of a curve here. Maybe it's, it's similar to like a supply and demand curve where you, where you want to find the optimum yield between the business experience and the user experience. So we know what user experience is, right, is about. We will tolerate a five or 10 second ad to see some free Hulu video or something, some clip that we want. And somebody's got to do some math on the back end, like how many people am I going to turn off by showing a 20-second ad, can I double my revenue because I can show two ads, but am I going to lose half my audience so the net gain is zero? Right. Um, I think there's a lot of, of, of interesting thought. I'm sure it's going on right now um, around how to maximize business experience and user experience because it's a fact of life. You're going to have ads. It's, we understand it. And I think our world, when we're doing you know, ASP.NET, kind of classic web development behind the firewall or SharePoint or databases, advertising to us was weird. I remember yeah. when I saw my first ad on ASP.net, right. it was really troubling. The but now it's like, it makes sense. In fact, I wish I'd thought of it because it's turned out it's kind of the thing that's keeping the internet going is, is yeah. advertising or monetization through ads and subscriptions and things like that. So I think it's brilliant. I think that there is tremendous strides to be made in thinking about how to maximize the BX and the UX, business experience, user experience. And to me, it pivots around how to, how to keep people engaged for a long time with your content and subject them to advertisements in a way it's not going to turn them off. Um, I think you, you guys do it. I mean, you guys are ad supported as well. Sure. So, yep. uh, and you've got a very loyal long time listening audience. I think anybody that's doing web development today on this platform, that's public facing. You might need to start thinking about that and use it as an opportunity to innovate because we can do amazing things. Think about it for the Olympics and Senate football. We have live video. Yeah. Commercials are being blown down to us that are specific for the web, but you can still rewind and back up. So we got this kind of TiVo world of DVR style functionality. Yet we've got to manage we've got to manage advertisements. And it's this weird mind-bending sets of rules. I mean, what we used to call business logic now on the web is really advertising. It's business rules, but it it, it tends to go with how you advertise things. And it's uh it's you know, I'll admit, it feels a little dirty, but <laughs> it's part of the way the world works, and that's fine. Um, the attention side of this, we run into it strange loop. We're looking at Google's research on search requests. They say anything longer than three seconds, and you start to see drop-off. Three wow. seconds. Yeah. So we were, we, we're doing this now at strange loop with website performance. Three seconds, and you guys are still on show number 510 or something. These yeah. are long podcasts. How long are these podcasts? These are an hour. About an hour. Jeez. Yeah. I can't think of the last time I've done anything but sleep for more than one hour straight. That's great. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Our listeners listen while they sleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how's that working out for you? That's good.
Tell us about the Sunday night football thing, because this is something we haven't talked about on .NET Rocks. Uh, yeah, so we're in the middle of Sunday night football. There was, there was, um, gosh, what can, what can I say about it? Well, first of all, your audience is somewhat global, right? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so Sunday night football. Well, this is American football played with a non-round, non-spheroid object. Um, yeah. It's a show that's extremely popular. Um, it's broadcast by NBC every Sunday evening at five thirty Eastern, and we've been working with with. Microsoft and NBC Sports, which has the broadcast uh, rights for Sunday Night Football. Um, and we've put on, I don't know, I think so far maybe about 10, I think it's a total of about 15 shows. And it's a live event. At, you know, somebody's at Vertigo at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. Jack's getting ready, you know, making sure everything's a go. The, 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 the satellite uplink is made. We don't do that, but they make the satellite uplink. It gets pulled down to Ice Stream Planet. They run it through inlet boxes for Silverlight streaming and coding. It goes up to Akamai via Microsoft, and then our Silverlight client pulls it down and starts playing. And at the same time, we're getting a data feed in the video feed that's kind of inserted into it to know when to show markers and key plays and advertisements. And surrounding all that, we've got multiple camera angles. We've got four camera angles. So the little, that little cable camera that floats around on top of the field, you can watch the game from that perspective, from the end zone camera, and two others. And what's cool is you can switch between camera angles while the show's going on. That's amazing. There's also, like, a guy that's answering moderated questions. There's tweets from the sidelines. And so the whole idea is for NBC to give people an extra experience watching it online. It's been really successful. You say it's successful. What, uh, what, do you have any numbers? I do, but I can't tell you. <laughs> That's up to uh, NBC to release. But um, yeah, as you can imagine, they just like um, Nielsen ratings for for TV shows, which are used to price out advertisements. Those numbers are public. Um, the the Sunday Night Football show is typically the highest rated TV show that um, that, that evening, especially when there's a, a big a big game. You know, a big blowout game like the Colts versus the Patriots or something like that. So they get a lot, a big audience for that. Um, and there is a corresponding, there's a ratio for that audience for also the online audience. But, you know, think about it, though, Sunday night at 5.30, except for the people on this podcast, most people aren't in front of their computer. <laughs> they're probably with their, <laughs> they might be with their families or their, um, you know, they're probably not in front of a TV. So it's not identical. It's not an identical audience, but it's still very good. And they're learning a lot from it. I'm trying to imagine how you get that much bandwidth when you have multiple different simultaneous camera angles. Like that just sounds like a management mm-hmm. nightmare. It is. It is. It's a, well, when you're full screen, the maximum bandwidth you get is 3.5 megabits per second, which is enough to give you a very decent 720p HD experience. But you don't have multiple cameras at that point. When you're in the small mode, we have a smaller bandwidth for the smaller player. And then those little thumbnail postage stamp size cameras those aren't those are taking up an even smaller chunk of bandwidth. So a lot of what we're doing is trying to figure out the right mix of quality and without loading down everybody's computer. And we we have some heuristics to to maybe not show the thumbnail cameras, the, the sideline camera for example. If you have a slow computer, we'll delay the the rolling of that uh, particular piece of video. It's very seamless. It's hard to do. I mean there's I think we're the first ones to, to integrate all these cameras and keep them synchronized fairly well. Wow. It's it's tough. And then you got to Think about it. You still have to. They have to work with advertisements as well. So the mainstream goes when it times to times to cut time to cut to an ad. The UI is disabled, so the advertisers get their message out, and NBC gets paid. And so there's a lot of little business logic we have to do to follow that. And you know, a lot of this was proving the platform and the technology and getting the bugs worked out before we run with the Olympics, mm. which is February 12th. Yeah, and I think it's in Canada. 
Yeah, it's in somewhere Richard knows about. Yeah, Richard, you know where that is? Where? It's, not, it's around here somewhere. Yeah, it's like your backyard, isn't it? It's around here everywhere is the problem. Right? <laughs> Lots of people are, are leaving town. Wow. 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 I am going to try to figure out how to come up and crash your place, Richard. I'm working on that. You'll, uh, you'll have to sleep on the floor because everybody's converging on Richard's house. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, the good news is the outdoor kitchen will be done, so there'll be lots of barbecue. Yeah. Uh, we've got to get our barbecue going. Uh, your listeners probably don't know that you and I have this weird barbecue connection. The green egg connection. The big green egg connection, yes. And Richard, <laughs> you're far more accomplished than I am, but we both have this obsession of this 200-pound um, ceramic cookware from Atlanta, Georgia, that's based on a 1950s or 1960s import design from, I think it was Japan. Yeah, it's Japanese. Where the, a lot of servicemen were coming back from being stationed overseas, and they brought back this concept of cooking and this 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 method, which, honestly, I mean, I've seen them with... Um, as an Indian grill that's very that's similar. Just a thick ceramic thing that holds a lot of heat. Like a tandoori. Yeah, yeah, tandoori. Exactly. So it's like a tandoori, but it's green, looks like an avocado. But you can cook low and slow, like at two hundred degrees for eighteen hours if you're good, like Richard. Or I've actually I've actually got the grill up to about a thousand degrees. Yeah. So you can go either way. And you can't do that with gas. And I've also found that you can cook about two or three pounds of bacon before the fire department's notified. <laughs> I literally, my, my friend is in a bacon of the month club, Kevin, here at the, at the office, and he had a couple of packages of bacon stacking up in the fridge. I'm like, let's get a bunch of people, get some bread, and go to my house and make BLT sandwiches. Uh, BLT but I didn't party. want the smell in the house, so I thought, let's cook it on the grill. Well, it turns out there's a lot of fat bacon. Mm, I don't know if you've I've seen what that. happened when fat hits fire, yeah. but it's usually pretty bad. But it's I can bad, tell you, it was things. the crispiest bacon we've ever had. <laughs> Oh man. oh, man. Well, I think I had pictures. It was ugly. I was seriously worried. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC. The extensions bring rich UIs to your MVC application. These are just announced, and this time they're not standard web forms controls tailored for MVC, but native, built-from-the-ground-up MVC components. There's three important things to remember. One... They're pure ASP.NET MVC components. Two, they're based on jQuery. And third, and this is the best part, they're completely open source. Just go to www.telerik.com slash MVC for more information and online demos. Make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So getting back to Silverlight <laughs> here. Uh, <laughs> um, Let's talk a little bit about a uh, bit about some of the streaming video codec protocols like H.264 is a is a good one probably the state of really? the art in terms isn't it one of the well, state of the art protocols well, it, well, no I was questioning is it interesting I mean yeah it's oh, like I think JPEG. so I mean one of the one of the coolest things about it is the quality versus the amount of data that's required I mean it's sort of like you see what MP3s do to wave files I mean this is mm -hmm. This is even more severe than that in terms of compression. Yeah, I think there's a, um, you know, there's really two choices. There's VC1, which is a SMPTE standard, and there's H.264. And Microsoft bet on VC1 early on with Silverlight 1. And as it turns out, a lot of the world likes H.264. Mm. And they both have, I'm sure if you dig deep enough, you'll find supporters for both. Um, nevertheless, with Silverlight 4, it's no longer an issue. We can support both, and we have DRM for both. Yeah. So 
the HD64 is probably a bit more efficient on, like you said, and I think it does something to the color gamut, which is really suitable for sports and fast-moving action. Yeah. Um, but there, there are people out there that know so much more about this than me. I would not believe anything I say. Oh, okay. Usually on anything, but in this case in particular. All right, let's get back to barbecue. So, Richard, <laughs> no, no, you actually have good. a barbecue well, podcast or something that's going on? What is this? Uh, Can we talk yeah, about I've been, that? I've been, uh, yeah. I have been working on a barbecue podcast. He's not Richard's going to do yet. a barbecue podcast, Scott. Well, I want to be on it. I'm not sure what I'd say. I can tell you how to barbecue bacon. There you go. You're going to like have the sound of bacon sizzling. Yeah. Oh, that smells so good. People are driving to work going, oh, man, this podcast is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to smell that smoke. Oh, yeah. Applewood. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I I actually heard a uh, a little bit. They they're basically shooting pilots, Richard and another guy, and um and uh, and I actually heard it, and and I got so hungry listening to it, I had to go to Chester's Barbecue here in New London and get yourself a fix. get myself a fix. Good, good. We we really don't have much. We don't really have much in the way of barbecue out here in California. There are a couple spots, but they're. I'm from Georgia. That's where my family is, and there's nothing like pulled pork from Statesboro, Georgia. Um, and then my sister mom live in uh, near Austin, Texas, and that has the best brisket. It's just, there's something about barbecue that's so regional and so, yeah. like, reminds you of home. I love it. And it's just not the same here. All right. So, Let me give one more stab at the Silverlight conversation. <laughs> oh, really? Gonna, I'm, gonna give, I'm really I'm gonna give steering this away, aren't I? Here. Okay, go. See. I'm ready. I'm ready. Because I recall some, some of the very first WPF apps I ever saw came out of Vertigo. Yep. Right. So now with Silverlight 4, is there any reason to build a WPF app ever again? Absolutely. Uh, I don't think Silverlight 4 replaces. I mean, yeah, I could probably find a few cases of applications that we built that you've got to use WPF. But I can tell you that the, you know, the first big WPF app that we built was for Tim Sneath, and it was the family.show. Mm-hmm. That's, that, yes. that's the um, kind of family tree visualization. Yep. Um, which, by the way, somebody ripped off the design is now selling it at the Apple Store. Oh, me up whenever. I, yeah, yeah. There's an Apple version of that that we had nothing to do with, and someone copied our design, which is flattery. It's fine, um, <laughs> but th- early on we thought, how how would we port that to Silverlight? And we thought it'd be tough. And but now things come along like printing and right mouse button, and we're using we need the wheel to zoom in and out. It's all there. So. That's a case. I mean, look, this is what architects get paid for, or the, the, the gurus that you talk about, or to answer those questions, why would I use WPF over Silverlight? And for people listening to the show, and if you're on the platform, you, you, this is kind of your warning. This is, this is a call to arms. You've got to get Silverlight under your belt. You've got to learn Silverlight. I just think that there's really, for line no, of business applications, which most people are building, why would I do it in anything other than Silverlight? Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of a reason. I mean, there's going to be, you know, inside of an IT organization, there's going to be some resistance to deploy Silverlight. That's always going to be there. And it's it's going to haunt us for a long time. Um, I think it's, there's so much more to be gained with a good Silverlight plus ASP.NET. They don't, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. There are probably some things that are very much, you know, well-suited to what HTML does. But let's face it, HTML is not a good programming environment. All right, here's one, Richard. But, you can't... How about Adobe Audition? Do you think that you could write that in Silverlight? The answer's no. Uh, hang on. The more salient point here, which is if, you, if you're not going to deploy Silverlight onto a machine, why would you deploy Framework 3.51 SP1? Yeah, good point. 
right? Like the that Silverlight's so much smaller in, in comparison. Yeah, that's right. Now, and I'm not saying this was a fecious argument I threw out there because it's not. Studio 2010 is built in WPF, and I'm with with Carl. Audition, yeah, should be built in in, in WPF. Video editing Sovereign software. Apps. How about mm-hmm. uh, Huckabee's uh, uh, cancer? Uh, cell visualization thing couldn't be done because it's 3D. So there are things that just can't be done. There but are. I don't think, but none of those things are line of business apps. No, they're not. You're right. Well, at the end of the day, these are all Turing machines. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's just a point in time. At some point, we can't predict that down the road you can't do audition in Silverlight. Just like I was surprised when I saw what Adobe is able to do with Photoshop on the web. And here's right. the thing. Maybe you can do 90% of what you want. And you're okay with it, but in any in any sense, it should never be this or that, or it everything has to be 100% Silverlight and no WPF. It should be pick the best tool for the job. In some cases, maybe the best tool is Flash. If you're doing an interactive banner ad, you got to use Flash because nobody's going to install Silverlight for an ephemeral experience like an advertisement. It it just means we can't do it. By the way, Sony Vegas Eight, yeah, WPF app. They've been they've been in the WPF camp I think for a while. I remember installing it, and it used to be they'd even install uh, SQL Express to manage your media. Yeah, I know. There's some great apps in WPF, and maybe just the heavy lifting, long running transactions in, in in a lowercase t kind of way, yeah. like video editing. Yeah. Maybe those are better better suited for a platform that's more tolerant of connections going up and down. I'm just not convinced that Silverlight adoption is going to be that much of an obstacle much longer. The rate of adoption is pretty huge. I, I think the rate is great. I think the absolute number, we still have a ways to go. And you know, we should mark our calendars. This time next year has the adoption. I mean, once we get to 80%, I can relax. Because yeah. I know that the, the, the rest of the world, is, it, it's some kind of sigmoid function where I'm not... I'm not worried about the, the uptick anymore. Yeah. Um, the number one argument that we have to answer is why Silverlight, why not Flash? And I have to say, gosh, it's like comparing, man, I need a good metaphor here, but the Silverlight or Flash is just the tip of the iceberg, literally right. in this case, right. where there's so much be- underneath the waterline that you don't see that we do and you guys do and everybody does, right. which is good old either WCF or Good, you know, business logic in the middle tier, separation concerns, SQL Server transactions, maybe, not in every case, but you have it there if you need it. And it's the same tool, same language, same platform, so you can traverse up and down the stack fairly easily. Now, I'm not saying you want to write .NET in SQL Server, just because you can. still might be best to, you know, use T-SQL for that or something. But um, the fact is you can do it. And with with Flash, I just feel like we're stuck above the waterline, the thing that everybody sees. Now, there are a lot of things that Flash does Things that they do that we don't do well yet, like font rendering. That that's my jihad for 2010. Typography, typography, typography. Also, the Flash editor is really, really nice. Yeah, it's Blend has a learning curve. Um, yeah. I don't yeah. know much about the the Flash development world, but you know, I, I think getting your feet wet in any platform, um, there's going to be a learning curve. And I'm not saying this is trivial. It's not. Well, Blend's gotten so much better since uh, since most everybody looked at it in version one, or the or the beta of version one. It's gotten oh, it's, so much. It's great. It's night and day. I mean, it really is yeah. an incredible piece of work now. And Sketchflow has been a piece that's literally it's gotten us work. Yeah, Sketchflow. We've done is a couple. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we've done like half a dozen by now projects that use Sketchflow. We don't necessarily roll straight from the Sketchflow 
design into code because that shouldn't be the point. I do believe that sketching an application, you should go into it with the understanding that you should throw it away. Now, I think the, that's not necessarily the message Microsoft sends, and I know you can derive code from it, but I don't want people to think that you have to use that as your starting point. You should still look at the concept of sketching. Well, sketches. Sketches could be thrown away. They're, they're meant to be a, a means toward an end, not the end in and of itself. And we do find it, however, a great tool to get to, to present a low-fidelity yet potentially high interactive sign-off with a customer. So we can take requirements, spend a couple of days with Sketchflow and say, is this kind of what you're looking at or what you're looking for? And we can send them a URL and they can add comments to it and we can then use that as an artifact for our ongoing development. It's awesome. And they never, they don't have the uh, uh, fix, fix the color of that button syndrome. Yeah, oh my gosh, we literally prototype. put the background of a control in Fuchsia. Yeah. Fuchsia. Now, granted, I know we're developers, not designers in this show. You've probably seen fuchsia. It's a color that would stand out. It kind of looks it like must be cat something... puke. Yeah, yeah. And we told the customer that fuchsia, we're just simply highlighting an area in the design. Don't worry about it. 30 minutes later, what do you think they say? Yeah. You got to change that. Why is that fuchsia? Yeah. Got to change that fuchsia color. Yeah. So it, that's why I like black and white, low fidelity stuff exactly. because it doesn't, you don't pretend. I fall into the same trap. I yeah. see early designs from our designers and I'm still looking at type and I'm looking at color. I'm looking yeah. at negative space. It's not the time to do that. Nope. That's a graphic design problem for later or usability problem. Sketchflow screams, this is a drawing. Just yes. Leave me yeah. alone. Yeah. Ironically, they're using very precise design concepts to indicate that it's a sketch. So they're, they're really thinking. <laughs> There's a lot of code behind the scenes to make that thing look like squiggly lines, and when you hover over it, the squiggles change. It's, 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 it's cool. I love it. But it's it's a fascinating piece of psychology that when confronted with an app like that, we go after the things that I mean. And even you admit you do this; those things aren't important, and yet they're the first things you grab onto. Yeah, what's wrong with our heads? Well, you we can't let that go. It, it, well, because we're, we're visual creatures. We are and visual. We've grown yeah. up. People focus yeah. on the user experience right off the bat. That's what it's all about. It's always yeah, well, about the visual, user, user Yeah, experience. the visuals hit you right away. And um, your ability, if you have a task to solve, your ability to make the leap from the physical model presented in front of you to the mental model of what you think it should do is informed by the layout and then later informed by your interaction with the layout. So it's a right. combination of the first thing you see, the first impression, and then your impression as you're trying to solve a problem. I still have a problem with the mental model of Twitter. I mean, now I'm using it quite a lot now. Might be a good segue, actually. But um, I'm C-sharp, S-E-E, sharp. By the way, I had Silverlight as a, as a Twitter ID. I gave it back to Microsoft. That was a pretty hot property, I believe. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, nice one. So I was smart enough to, well, not smart. I'm, never, I'm not smart. I was lucky enough to register Silverlight early on. Why I didn't register Scott Stanfield early on is beyond me, but I, I got C-sharp, <laughs> S-E-E, sharp. Thinking more about Microsoft than me. Um, I went, we, hmm, I have this idea. Can I tell you guys? Yeah, I thought about, on the record I want to get, no, this is on, yeah, this is on the record. So I want to get more followers for C sharp. Um, and I thought this is literally at lunch day. I thought I'll give away t-shirts to the first 20 people that follow me. I thought, ah, oh, let's make it interesting. I'll give away the first 20 Fibonacci numbers that follow me. <laughs> wow. So 
and that's a way to limit my, you know, the, the 20th Fibonacci number. By the way, if you, you should go to Wolfram Alpha to check this stuff out. So Wolfram Alpha. Yeah, Wolfram Alpha, it, by the way, now incorporated into Bing. Bing. Yeah, it's awesome. So theoretically, you can just search for Fib and then in parentheses the number 20 to see the 20th Fibonacci number. It's 6,765. So I figure the odds of me getting 6,765 followers, if I get that, I can probably dig up 20 t-shirts. <laughs> so that, that's how I actually ran it by the people that control the t-shirts at Vertigo. It's a very serious thing. I said, look, I, I, I actually tried to explain the Fibonacci stuff, which, which is fine. They understood. If you go to, um, if, if you go to Bing and type Fibonacci sequence, uh, you'll get the Wolfram Alpha function computed. And it's F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I. And you can get the table and you can see. So the first, you know, the first person. Now, let me, let me add a caveat. You have to go to vertigo.com slash Twitter. You can't just follow me on the Twitter interface because I have no way of tracking the ordinal number in which, the, the order in which you followed me. So you have to go to vertigo.com slash Twitter. You just do like the little um, OAuth punch out authentication. So you log, log in and click a button to follow, follow me. And then we'll tell you what number follower you are from using that site. And if you're, we're going to skip Fibonacci number number one, starting with number two. So if you're the first user, the second, third, fifth, eighth, 13th, 21st, 34th, 55th, then we'll ask you to um, give us your t-shirt size. You may well do mugs. I heard you guys say mugs earlier. We have really cool mugs. Yeah, we'll, I, give mugs we'll do right. a stock check. It's either going to be a mug or a t-shirt. We'll figure it out by then. But I thought that was a good way to limit my, limit my uh, downside in terms of the number of t-shirts, and also for the people that are hearing this thing late, you could hear this thing a year from now. If we saw this thing running, it should still work. It's just your odds of hitting that Fibonacci number X is going to be lower and lower. So here's something to throw out at the last minute. At the launch event, I'm doing an evening session on the correlation between musicians and programmers. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice little thing to throw out there with five minutes left. (laughs) But, uh, uh, you know, we, we did a whole show with you on aesthetics and creativity and left brain, right brain and programming and uh, pretty much came to the inclusion that some of the best programmers have a, 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 a really good balance between left and right brain and that there isn't as much right brain activity in programming community as there should be. As it should be. Absolutely. I, I think it's um, I have a minor in music, so coincidentally. Um, and I think there's, there are a lot of similarities. I, I was surprised a lot of people in the comp side department at Cal Poly were getting minors in music. Yeah. And ironically, it wasn't until later, a lot of the, le- I mean, the electronic music at the time was like Shostakovich and some really obscure composers from the 30s. It wasn't until mo- more modern music in the past 10 or 15 years, starting with kind of trance, and um, that, that we got to see the rise of pure electronic music in a pop culture form. Um, I actually tweeted, this is funny, uh, mostly for the benefit of my mom, blues for dummies, which is the pentatonic scale right. plus, plus the letter A, not the letter A, plus the key A. So it's all the black notes plus occasionally throw in an A and you sound awesome. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so it's technically the pentatonic scale, which is the black notes, plus the diminished fifth. And you, you can really sound like you know what you're doing. Absolutely. Sorry, Carl, I kind of blew your cover. No, no, no. That's... I spent the day uh, interviewing Richard Hale Shaw on his thoughts about this and um, actually putting together a documentary on the subject that I hope uh, will get some legs because there really hasn't been any definitive work on it, uh, on this correlation. I'm, su- I'm surprised. 
surprise. We uh, that that be fascinating. I'm f- I found a lot of blog posts, and I hear a lot of people say, you know, hey, you know, these guitar players seem to make good programmers. And I met a guy at the PDC who only hires musician programmers. That's it. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Well, huh. anyway. So, uh, what what, sh- what note should we end on here? I made um I, I found in some of the, the the older interviews I gave a couple uh, links or things that I'm into right now. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned one Wolfram Alpha is awesome. The Canon S90. I'm finally happy with a compact camera. Can I say that? Can I can I give a yeah. shout out to a yeah. product? Yeah. There, there's a reason why it has it. Listen, listen. Can you hear that? It has a physical analog dial on a digital machine wow. to simply help you dial in the aperture. I love it. Such a simple idea. Wow. Follow, last, last thing, follow McSweeney's. McSweeney's is a fantastic publisher. They got its start in San Francisco. And the, the humor and satire writing, is, it's wonderful. McSweeney's. Love, love McSweeney's. I'll send you a link. So the F90. D90. Oh, like did you say F D nine? No, 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 no. S as in Sierra ninety. Ah, S ninety. Yeah, McSweeney. All right, cool. Well, we'll check those out. Is that Timothy McSweeney? Yes, that's it. It's great. They have an iPhone app, and I, I'm paying like five bucks a year on the iPhone app to subscribe to literature and humor that I could get for free by simply visiting the website. But the content's so good and so humorous. I look forward to reading it every night. And it's just something completely not related to software. I love it. Great stuff. Awesome. Scott, thanks again for talking to us. And congratulations on your success with Silverlight and the NFL and uh, the Olympics and all this great stuff. You are truly our hero. Thanks, guys. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 